This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Hey there, everyone, and welcome in. Oh, welcome back in to Film Tank. <laughs> uh, I am Alex Diekman, along with my buddy Nick Cheney. Yeah, hello there. Hi, it's just the two of us, you and I. Just uh, on this the episode. two of us. <laughs> uh, no other friends uh, here on this episode, but we're, that's okay. We're losing them quickly. Weekend. Yeah, well, you know, it's hard when you know you're assholes so what do you do true very true yes oh yeah so uh on this episode which is 234 i believe we've got a little off with the numbering mostly because uh our recordings have been happening a little inconsistently with everything going on still we're still obviously recording these over skype and not in our studio so I think we're back on track, though, and this is episode 234. And Ooh. on this very episode, we are going to talk about a previous Best Picture winner, which is the movie Spotlight. Uh, the film was directed by Tom McCarthy and, as I mentioned, won the Oscar for Best Picture and also won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. So we will get to that shortly. But first, I'm um, going to talk a little bit uh, about something we talked about previously when we were at a different stage of the current COVID-19 pandemic, and that is movie theaters and just viewing films in a communal setting in general, because for the most part, since middle of March, movie theaters have been closed Uh, And even though there have been some drive-in theaters that have opened and obviously movies that have gone to VOD uh, that were smaller releases and even things like Trolls, we've seen, and also uh, that Artemis Fowl movie that uh, got released on Disney Plus and got just the worst reviews. Yeah, every time I read (laughs) about it, it makes me like perplexed that it just wasn't a Disney plus movie from the start based on, <laughs> uh, yeah, the shoddiness. Yeah. But anyways, the plan, uh, as with most businesses right now that are involved with gatherings of people, the plan is to attempt to open a lot of these movie theaters, uh, depending on where you are in the country sometime in the next two to six weeks. Uh, So meaning sometime in probably July, uh, we know that our local theaters are going to be trying to do that. 
We obviously know AMC will be trying to do that, as we heard today from their CEO, who decided to make a very poorly thought out statement. (laughs) And uh, really just interesting times, because obviously everyone who's on this podcast loves to go to the theater uh, and does so on a regular basis. And it's certainly been a piece of our lives that has been missing over the last few months. So Nick, uh, I, I feel like I kind of feel kind of have an idea of how you're leaning on terms of returning to the movie theater during the pandemic, but, uh, interested to hear what you actually think, uh, about the upcoming openings and what you're personally going to be thinking about with movie theaters. Yeah. It's, it's, that's a hard question because you're right in the sense that I've like, you know, off mic, we've had this conversation already a million times and we'll keep having it. So I, I have been leaning towards like, I probably would make my way out to a theater sooner rather than later, but also only for certain occasions, unfortunately, Christopher Nolan's new movie being one of them, uh, unless it is, uh, release, uh, you know, on demand as well. I'm not against doing that. Instead, I just, from all the, the way they talk about that movie, it just doesn't make any sense if they would now drop it on demand. Um, otherwise they wouldn't have moved it in the first place, I don't think. Um, but I will admit this last week, um, (laughs) has, I wouldn't say made me completely rethink my decision, but certainly I had a much more optimistic vision of the future uh, with regards to theater management. Um, This is not true for all theaters, but obviously, yeah, like the AMC CEO saying, we're not going to require a face mask because we don't want to be political is a uh, horrible and uh, just dangerous and also blatantly false because that's a political action in and of itself. <laughs> um, yeah, the thing about that comment is that I feel like he could have just come out and said part of our plan for reopening is we are not going to require our guests to wear face masks, but we have this, this, and this in place. Yeah, um, no, it's like, oh, you're it, just it, leading it, with that. Yeah. No, the the second part of that statement or that quote or whatever you want to call it um, pretty much puts it out there that he wants to be fired. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I'm still up in the air because, like, the local theater by myself and and you, um, I read about what they're going to do when they open, which is actually a week from tomorrow. So that's weird. But... They are going to require masks um, all the way up until you are sitting in a chair. So when you sit, when you're sitting down to watch the movie, you can take the mask off. But if you get up to go to the bathroom and get a refill to go out to your car, like you're expected to have your mask on, which I, I think is a good idea, and I'm okay with that. Um, maybe some people are going to think that it should be worn throughout the whole movie. And well, first of all, anybody obviously reserves the right to wear it throughout the movie it's not like that they're not going to be like take your mask off um but i think that's at least as far as mask goes i think that's the right call mostly because i think if you're going to see a movie you're kind of forfeiting your right to try to mitigate uh that kind of health risk because you know you're taking one to begin with um 
and obviously other things like they're creating gaps in between the seats uh, by not letting you purchase seats that are next to other people uh, at least two chairs away or something like that. So I don't see the difference between like that those kind of practices and going to an outside restaurant, which I've done once um, and thought it was a horrible experience, but that was due to rest- restaurant management, not because I, you know, whatever. But um, so I don't know. I guess I'm still up in the air for sure. Um, but I am starting to lose my will to do it if, you know, more and more people would just do the right thing and wear their masks and, you know, I mean, I think that's ultimately what will prevent me from going if I decide not to is because I'll just lose faith in other people. Um, and, you know, whatever, it's not the end of the world, nor will I be like that bummed out about it, you know, I'll just, just won't go, but I don't know, um, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like I shouldn't, so then I probably won't. But what about you? I'm assuming I know where you're going to land. Um, yeah, I even though I currently go into a workplace, um, and although masks are required in the factory, uh, and they're supposedly required in the office, uh, that started slipping here in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And um, I haven't made that big of a deal about it because no one like comes up right next to me without a mask on. So I feel like trying to like make a big deal about it to someone else who isn't wearing one while they're like walking around the office. Uh, I just don't want to really do that. Right. Um, but that being said, I spend my time with those people every day. Um, they, again, are respecting my space and are not coming close to me unless they have a mask on. So for the most part, it's it's been okay. And I've been there for about a month now back from working at home. And I feel a little more comfortable with everything and how it's, it's gone through. Um, so that's been better. But... The movie theater part of it, ah, I really do want to go back to the movies and go see a film, but man, I just feel like, um, I don't know if it's worth it. Uh, uh, Tenet will be difficult because if that is the only way you can see that movie, it's going to be really hard for me to not go to the movie theater to see it. I would love to pay $20 to watch it at home yeah. or go to a drive-in theater somewhere to see it. I mean, I I feel like that sounds awesome, but um, just I feel like the idea of just going to an enclosed movie theater where you can almost guarantee that people are going to have their masks off. Uh, they're probably, a lot of them are going to be eating, so they're going to be spewing, you know, saliva out um you know what are movie theaters going to be like if someone just starts like aggressively coughing in the middle of a film like are people going to get up and like ask the theater to remove them like i i don't i mean i'm thinking of all these these like you know i I don't want to say they're they're worst case or um negative scenarios but at the current time that we're at like 
just for to go watch a, a movie that I can see later when it comes out, it's definitely not worth it for me. So, yeah, uh, Tenet's going to be possible that it could it could lead me there, but I I feel like I I don't trust other people enough, especially with some of the just horrendous etiquette we've seen over the years in movie theaters. Like I, I think that's part of the thing that's really making me. That's definitely not feel about it. Yeah, fair. I mean, that's that's half the reason why I find that AMC comment so insane to me because it's like movie theaters already say don't text during the movie and then do nothing about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. So to come out and say you don't have to wear a mask, like there's literally no reason why you shouldn't say wear your mask. A because that's just the fucking right thing to do in this case because there's. Oh, there's going to be people who aren't going to do it anyway. So, I I don't know. Just to, like, give carte blanche, and, uh, yeah, it's just stupid. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean they're, they're, they are making a major political stick with that. They are coming out and saying, we are fine with you coming without a mask, and we're not even going to try. Yeah, so. and I guess it's so weird to me that for an industry that's been so on the edge these last like what well, decade so to speak that this is like their moment so to speak to like come back when it's safe to do so and to see that like the top chain in the entire you know whatever is just that cowardly it's like well i guess there's a reason maybe for theaters going down the drain i mean this is on a macro level the same kind of attitude that they have like i said just a second ago about like not really giving a shit about the customer and the customer's experience because yeah like you can have no texting bumpers but if you don't actually do anything to police it and i don't mean that like we should live in a world where somebody is standing in the theater the entire time you know what i mean but um they created a culture that basically says the customer sitting in the chair who is the loudest or the most vocal or the most scary or whatever uh, is allowed to dictate the entire temperature of the room for everybody else's movie experience. And this is no different. Yeah, uh, I, I guess I feel like movie theaters have gone the way of a lot of other businesses where... It is so much uh, only about what the profit margin is and has nothing to do um, with the customer's experience. I mean, we've seen things change in terms of alcohol being provided or uh, reclining seats being available or sound systems being upgraded. Uh, But you know, in terms of actually trying to improve your customer's experience, I'm, I'm with you. As soon as you cross the door and go into the theater, as long as somebody is not physically harming you, they don't care yep. about what is going on in that movie theater. That is a very, like, what we don't see, we don't care about, which, like, is very weird and disconcerting. And, um,. I mean, I know there's not, like, a lot that they can do. Like, for example, like, the no texting thing. It's like, okay, you can't, like, put a jammer into the theater and block everybody's access to outside calls or whatever. But, um, 
You know, I mean, look at theaters like Alamo Drafthouse. They make it a part of their culture that texting is in the theater is wrong. And so they're known for it. You know, I mean, it, it just takes having that kind of public or publicity on your kind of stance to create a culture that will follow the rules. And if they don't, it gives the power to the people. Because pretty much if you go to the Alamo Draft House and you start texting, the whole theater will tell you to turn off your phone. It won't just be on one guy who randomly says, turn off your phone. So, um, you know, there, there are ways to do it. And there are ways to tell your customers that like, well, no, you have the right to tell other people to get out. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> I think just as a society, we need to have more things like that. But I, I think it goes back to people don't agree on what proper etiquette is anymore because yeah. they just want to do whatever they want to do and everyone has a different opinion. So everyone's just doing whatever they want to do, which is really a shame because, you know, sitting in a movie theater and, um, you know, your actions during movie theater should depend on the type of film you're watching. But if you're in a super serious movie, you should be very quiet or you should laugh during a comedy or And if you don't laugh, you get the fuck out of that theater. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah. Not a lot of laughing these days because comedies are really in the trash. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just shared understanding of proper etiquette in a lot of social settings, but especially movie haters is just completely gone uh, at this point. And you know what? Maybe it will lead eventually to most commercial movie theaters becoming non-existent in the next decade or so. I I don't know. I mean, that, that, that sounds terrible, but at the same time, um, kind of, going off of what you're saying, uh, in a lot of ways, they're not doing themselves any favors. No, um, but you're right in the sense that it's more of a societal problem than it is even just the movie theaters, because, you know, movie theaters are one thing, and, like, even if that's my mecca, uh, I know that not everybody feels that way or whatever, but I was genuinely, maybe not shocked, but, like, wow, this is everywhere. When I went and saw Hamilton, and... (laughs) The person mm. right next to me was on his phone the entire time. And I'm just like, <laughs> like, even live theater is not good enough to hold your attention. You know what I mean? Like, I, not even your attention, because I know, sure, some people get dragged to play or whatever. But, like, just respect. Like, yeah, the movie's rolling. The actors are on the screen. They don't know that you're on your phone. But, you know, <laughs> here you have an entire live communal thing. And so, yeah, we've we've fallen very far these days. I hope that girl dumped that guy because uh, she was like, she kept elbowing him because I kept kind of like mm. cocking my head like, hello there. And so she was clearly not okay with it. But then he kept like elbowing her back like, nope, I'm on my phone right now. Don't bother me. Uh, mm. And I want to say they did not come back uh, after intermission, actually. But that whole first act, oh. for first half or whatever Clearly, she really wanted to be there. He did not, and his desire trumped uh, hers. Great. Well, that uh, sounds like a real healthy relationship right there. Hell yeah. 
Speaking of healthy relationships, the movie we are discussing yeah. on this episode ah, is the Best Picture winner from 2015 at the 2016 awards, which was Spotlight. Uh, as I mentioned, it was directed by Tom McCarthy, uh, who before this film uh, put out the movie The Cobbler. So that was an interesting segue for him. Uh, but he put out a lot same of time, movies. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, The Cobbler is... Just, just an I know, he, I know he's never going to, like, live that down, but that's, like, literally one film in his uh, oeuvre that uh, the rest are actually good. Yeah. Anyway. And this one is very good. Uh, this is a film that myself and Nick saw at Evanston uh, in a very crowded theater. Yeah, we would have uh, all right gotten before. COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, that was a very interesting day because we saw Brooklyn earlier in the day. That was very, very crowded. Yes. Uh, then we saw the Tom Hardy movie Legend, which not, not as much. No. <laughs> and then Spotlight was, again, a full house in the biggest theater they have. So... Uh, a very fun, actually, uh, well, I don't know about fun, but a very, very good theater experience uh, that evening when we saw the film. Yeah. So Spotlight surrounds the true story of how the Boston Globe uncovered the massive scandal of child molestation and cover-up within the local Catholic archdiocese, shaking the entire Catholic Church to its core for a while. Um, yeah, I don't. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yeah. So the film stars Michael Keaton as Walter Robbie Robinson and also features Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams and has appearances also by John Slattery, Stanley Tucci, Jane, Jamie Sheridan, Billy Crudup, and also Leave Schreiber. Um, so I think we both like this very much. And I think we both probably have similar, at least in terms of the quality of this film opinions on this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who's, uh, who should go first because I, I, again, I, I think we both, uh, like this quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I could go first if you'd like. Okay. That's fine. Mm, all right. Sure. Let me take the spotlight yeah. here. <laughs> uh, man. Yeah, no, I am a huge fan of this movie. Um, this will always be definitely one of my favorite little uh, subgenres, the uh, the papes, the paper movies. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of any media depicting journalism uh, in a very thorough manner, and certainly this uh spiritual successor uh to um like something like all the president's men and whatnot so i was not let down when i saw this for the first time um it is an interesting thing because like when i watch or actually just this last couple months i actually read all the president's men too so i've that was a journey uh but when i you know go over to like that classic story it's always interesting because that feels like a historical story because i was obviously not born yet um 
But watching something like Spotlight is a whole different ball game uh, for you and myself because we were alive during the time that the scandal broke, and obviously during the time that uh, some of this was going on. Um, mm. And as a person who grew up Catholic, uh, there's also like weird internalization too of some of the uh, biases and uh, uh, perspectives I already have on an institution that. You know, I, I formed with or without a story like this, and then obviously a story like this did not help in any way. Um, but putting that aside for a moment, uh, I think this movie is definitely, definitely fantastic. I think the casting, for the most part, is a plus. There is a few B plus casting choices, I think, uh, like Michael Keaton. <laughs> who I think is in no way bad, but I think he just has such limited range that, um, I don't know, I, I have a weird relationship with Michael Keaton because I never not enjoy watching him. I just don't think he's very good. So I don't know if it's just that I think he's charming or what, but anyway. I feel like he's played the same character in every movie he's been in other than Beetlejuice. Yeah. And, 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 even, and even, even that still. Has... No, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think you're onto something in the sense that it's like, and it's not because he is playing the same character, like the, the, the script is calling for, but because he doesn't know how, you know, someone says, give me sadness. He just does that instead of thinking about like, well, how would this character experience it, you know, or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely think he's totally fine in this. Um, but, uh, I think he's a bit of a weak link and i will also mention uh mark ruffalo's mush mouth in this movie uh you know i was watching this and what was weird i haven't seen this i checked letterbox i haven't seen this movie in about oh excuse me i will edit that one out <laughs> i i haven't seen this movie in about four years or so and the first five to ten minutes of this movie i was like you know maybe mark ruffalo doesn't have that vocal affectation I remember as much as I thought he did. And then it was like after the first 10 minutes that all of a sudden, in my opinion, I could not not hear it. So um, I don't know what he's doing in here, but uh, it's just <laughs> not, not a fan. There's just something about it. Um, but to round it all, the rest of them up, I think everybody else is so perfectly casted. I mean, um, I want to give a special shout out to some of the bit players in here which are not small roles but certainly not uh, on the team of spotlight like um Lieb schreiber i could watch him just be the boss of a new paper uh for an entire movie because i think he was fantastic and had this very pragmatic air about him that was very refreshing because um it was weird because he's in some ways he's um played opposite of you know uh uh, Michael Keaton character and whatever, and yet they both want the same thing. So it kind of becomes fascinating to see them slowly uh, respect one another and whatnot. Um, it is also pretty interesting and uh, I think noteworthy that before, well, I guess it's not always before he becomes uh, the lead editor, but when he's arriving and people are finding out about him, multiple people go out of their way to mention that he's Jewish yeah, uh, and I I found that to be 
a little off-putting. No, I, I, uh, I think that was current climate. No, but I think it was actually very. You know, you think of Boston. One of the stereotypes is you know Boston Catholic. You know, and yeah. so certainly, I think there was probably a realistic, especially back in two thousand one. You know, like oh, we got an outsider coming in here, um, but. Uh, yeah, no, but I think he handles himself with, like, aplomb, both the character, but also just leaves Schreiber absolutely carrying the weight of a very put-upon person, but yet also staying completely <laughs> cool under pressure. Um, and I also love how, like, there's some of the interaction, like, when he has dinner with uh, Walter, or Walt, uh, Robbie, for the first time before they have their first day at work and he's reading about baseball and he's and so you know uh michael keaton says something about like you know you can get free tickets or whatever he's like yeah i'm not really into baseball i'm just reading about it because i'm gonna live here which i thought was a very interesting thing because you know it's like he's really committed to the job because he doesn't want to not be you know knowledgeable and or just part of the community um but he's also not afraid to be like yeah, this, you know, this is not me, you know, whatever, so. Um, it, it almost felt like a mirrored version of the scene he has with the, uh, the, the, the archdiocese, right? Where he has that meeting. Um, oh, with the cardinal? Yeah, the cardinal, not the archdiocese, yeah. And, um, like, they give him the Bible, and he's like, or the, not the, mm. but the catechism, you know, and he's like, okay, thank you. Um, yeah. So... We'll get into, obviously, scenes or whatever, but I'll round it out by saying the, the other cast. Um, the other shout-out I really want to give out to is Billy Crudup because that is such a perfectly casted person because he can play smarmy very well, and that's also not what his character is, actually. You know, and you really only know that by watching the whole thing because um, he's actually more bitter because of an injustice that, you know, transpired. And I think... That whole subplot with them kind of following up on what he said and what he had done prior to even the story is one of the best facets of journalism that this movie taps into, which is that there's always the macro story and then the micro, you know, kind of transactions that happen that kind of uh, shape the narrative in and of itself. And as journalists, when you go to break a story, you bring with yourself a lot of preconceived notions. And in a lot of ways, you're trying to break the story you already have in your head and when you when this movie shows is that you're a good journalist if you can actually pivot away from that narrative you already wrote when you find out otherwise because they find out very quickly that he's not the sleazy lawyer that you know they pretty much thought he was and not only that but it was their failure uh to really publicize this and whatnot and come forward and he's the one who has kind of a right to be angry after all that so I like the way how it kind of depicted that uh, on a smaller scale, that while the story is obviously about this entire uh, pedophilia scandal, it shows that there are so many little cogs in the machine that need to work for something like this to actually break. And, um, yeah. So I'm a big fan. I have a lot of thoughts. But uh, what about you? Yeah, I've, uh, I've always enjoyed this movie. I thought this was very good. I was very happy when this won Best Picture uh, at the Academy Awards about four, four and a half years ago. Uh, I think this is very well done. Um, I don't love All the President's Men, mostly because I've only seen it once. I was much younger, and 
uh, I did find it to be a little bit more of a task to watch than this. Uh, but I do plan on someday returning to that, uh, especially now with a little bit more of a deep palette uh, for those kind of films. But this particular film uh, has so much going for it uh, as we have great performances being delivered by pretty much everybody. Uh, I actually think Michael Keaton's pretty good in this. I will agree that he's not the best part of it, but I also think that he was actually a pretty good in my opinion at least, has the ability to go from zero to crazy uh, in, in a way, almost kind of like somebody like Gary Oldman used to be able to do. Uh, obviously not nearly as well as Gary Oldman because that's a actual actor, but um, Michael Keaton just is able to... You want to get nuts? Have... <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's just able to have a different tone, even though he's not able to really change his vibe. Uh, I guess that's kind of conflicting arguments that I'm giving, but I just like his performance. And I think it's actually pretty good. Uh, I agree. Leif Schreiber is probably the best part of this film. And I like that he's kept pretty, pretty away from the screen. I think he probably only has like, nine or 10 minutes of screen time in this, uh, but they're all really good moments that he is in this film and he is delivering a great performance with his epic voice. And also some of the best writing in the film uh, happens when he is delivering lines. And I don't necessarily know if that's an accident because he's a great actor. So he makes the most of the material he has to work with. I, I would um, really quickly say that I completely agree, and I almost get a weird, not necessarily in the pace, but a sort of Aaron Sorkin vibe sometimes when he was on screen, because like, the, mm. way, the way that they were talking about Spotlight possibly running with the story, I like how uh, I think John Slattery throws out, well, you know, Spotlight uh, usually gets to pick their own story, but he's like, would you consider picking this one? <laughs> yeah, just kind of putting it out there that I'm the boss. So yeah, he, he actually has a line though late in the film. It's right before uh, they are about to release the story. Uh, and they are, a lot of the reporters are sitting in a room together. Uh, and, and it's come to light that Michael Keaton basically buried the story uh, years prior uh, when he was working on Metro at the newspaper. Uh, and, one of the best quotes of the whole film comes from Leif Schreiber, who says, sometimes it's easy to forget that we are usually stumbling around in the dark. Then someone turns on a light and all of a sudden people are ready to place blame. And I mean, that's such a simple line, but at the same time, like it's most simple things that are just like honestly true that I'm thinking about, like people not knowing about anything, whether it's this or the Penn state scandal or whatever. And then all of a sudden the news breaks and everybody is just outraged. Um, and it's, you know, be not because of necessarily the content, but because they went from not knowing anything about it to finding out that there was this 
um, extremely deep scandal going on uh, that involved children. And it's horrifying and it's um, surprising. And it's, um, yeah, uh, it's just very well put and uh, a great line in the film. Uh, I also really, really like Stanley Tucci. I think he's giving a kind of quirky, but also very yeah. good performance. And he also has a very well-defined character in this film. And, and I, I really appreciated that. So one thing I noticed this, and I guess is getting a little in, in depth, I guess, but uh, it's just a like small little part of the beginning and end that I thought was a really nice parallel here. Um, and that is the fact that this film opens at the police station with uh, the Cardinal, or, or I guess it's the, the, because uh, it's the priest, it's Father Gagan, I believe, who is really the one who gets the whole ball rolling on this because everyone pretty much knows he's guilty. I mean, he's, he's been on trial. He's had multiple counts. Um, and basically the church has even admitted he's guilty for the most part. Uh, but they are trying to, um, push up this agenda that there's just a few bad apples. Uh, and that saying is uttered a couple times in this movie. And, that is the reason why I thought of this movie and doing an episode on it, because we've heard that a lot in the last few weeks yep. uh, with all of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests and um, opinions out there. Uh, this idea from the police that, oh, it's just a few bad apples. Like, no. And I'm not saying that the everything, everything with the police, but you know what? At some point, you need to call out what something is and just hiding behind this idea that that's just a, I'm like, no, no. Yeah. It's, no. it's one thing it, it, to You call. can say it's just a few of them in a neighborhood, but yeah. if you look on the grander scale, yeah. uh, there's a problem here. If, if you, if you can fill an orchard with the apples, uh, you can't quite say <laughs> it's, it's a few of them anymore. And, and you know, the parallel here between something like what we're seeing in real life with that and obviously with the actual real life story as well uh but as depicted in spotlight is the fact that there's this refusal to see it as a structural problem you know what i mean and it's almost like in a lot of ways i think there's uh, a lot of times where the people in my opinion that are on the right side of history and are calling out the you know bad injustice or whatever it, it's not that they are like it's almost like if you agree or if you think it truly is a few bad apples then a structural change shouldn't you know be that bad because only the bad apples would <laughs> not be able to work uh if we follow through with these so it, it also doesn't even add up as to what most people want out of these uh you know wrongdoings and whatnot um but yeah it's, it's certainly there's certainly a lot of parallels between something like a uh, union and a, uh, a an organization like a church well especially the catholic church in boston where obviously it carries and carried and carries still a, a lot of weight um Anyways, to finish the thought uh, and finish my opening thoughts, again, I really do enjoy this movie, and I think it is quite fantastic. Uh, but the police station, we start with the young cop who is in there knowing that uh, 
Gagan is in uh, being questioned uh, and wondering when the media is going to show up. And they're like, well, no, we're going to get him out the back door. Well, certainly at the arraignment, he won't be able to escape at that point. And then the other officer says, there's not going to be an arraignment. And then we see the two uh, religious gentlemen, uh, almost like gangsters, go out into a limousine and then speed off into the night. But then we go to the very end of the film. Um, and I, I thought this was a very well done parallel to that opening scene when we have Michael Keaton's character and um, Resendez, which was played by Mark Ruffalo in his marble mouth, uh, walking from the parking lot into the paper. First, A, they, uh, the opposite way, are surprised that there are not picketers, but not because they're surprised because they think that they should be there, but surprised because they thought they would be there and that they are not there. Uh, Also, too, uh, Michael Keaton delivers probably his best line of the movie uh, after uh, Mark Ruffalo says, I'm surprised there's no picketers. And Michael Keaton replies by saying, well, they're probably all still at church. (laughs) Uh, And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Yep. Uh, And then they they go in and find out that, indeed, there's nobody calling to complain about the story. um, And everyone is calling the tip line that was put at the end uh, of the story. And and that's, uh, you know, that's uh, that's an important ending of this film and a really nice final denouement send off uh, just watching these people. And really, they are journalists, but their job never ends, uh, especially with a story like this. Uh, And they're in on a Sunday um, taking the calls of survivors um, who just want to have their story known um, after hiding it for so long. So this is a very good film and uh, definitely a lot more to chat about, uh, about Spotlight. Definitely. Um yeah, I find it uh, very interesting as we kind of talked about. I I guess I kind of said this, but I'm going to open this up in a bigger uh, scope. But there are quite a few characters here that are not who they seem to be from the outset, and particularly uh, how the various reporters of Spotlight uh, think of them before they actually get to know them. I had talked, obviously, about uh, Billy Crudup's uh, Eric McLeish's character, Um where it turned out that, you know, he was trying to put a spotlight on this all this time. Uh, but obviously, you'd mentioned Stanley Tucci, uh, Tucci's character, the lawyer Garibaldi, and, uh, or Garibaldi, not Garibaldi. I was going to say. <laughs> Garibaldi, yes. oh boy, that's a character from <laughs> Babylon 5. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, Mitch Garibaldi, um you know, obviously his first scene, I mean, before we even get to meet him, we're already told that he's eccentric and weird and whatnot, and no one really believes what he has to say. Um, and even when uh, Ruffalo first shows up at the office, we're introduced to him off camera as he shouts at people and, you know, running a very, uh, certainly tense workplace. Um, but obviously, the more you watch the movie and the more someone's actually listening to him, the smartest you know, the smarter, I should say, he sounds, and probably the only person who actually cares about this case and is uh, actually understanding the full gravity of the scope of it and obviously the 
the way people ignore it. Well, especially he has that great uh, comment during uh, the random scene in the diner between him and Resendez uh, when he's talking about how it takes an outsider to point out all of this. And, yeah. it's, you know, it's it's true, though. Like, Well, and um, directly this, this... commenting on uh, Liev Schreiber. Yeah, and, and it's not not wrong and uh, uh, maybe someday we'll as a society be able to take more self-reflection uh, and community reflection uh, on, on ourselves but it is very difficult when you are ingrained in a culture in a community, a society uh, and you have lived with things for many years uh, to pretty much go against the current without someone pushing you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of going off the parallel of, like, you know, this movie or, you know, the uh, right now uh, instances of police brutality and whatnot. There's something to be said about when you grow up, um, at, at least exp- I would just say particularly when you grow up as a white uh, person, you're explicitly taught, you know, respect the police. They are there only to, you know, help you and whatnot. And that goes the same for, obviously, any kind of authoritarian figure, like a priest, for example, because that's what is passed down from generation to generation, is that there, there's, a system in, there's a system in place that will always be there for you, so therefore it can never do no wrong. And any, you know word of uh, the contrary is like genuinely like unbelievable to people even though the facts are right there or or even if it's not fact like if it's your own child telling you uh and you go and make cookies for the priest uh there's that kind of it's so weirdly ingrained into a lot of people that there's just whether like it's either a you just don't believe it or you do believe it, but you're also paralyzed by the fact that that goes against what you were taught. So therefore, you're you're not built for any sort of uh, healthy reaction or one that would actually uh, help out people in need. Which uh, unfortunately is what these predators and in both instances, I think that uh, the priests and also. A lot of the police officers uh, in our current and for a long time before this uh, yeah. have have operated under that. You know, I, I made the bad apple comment, and the reality is there are bad apples, but uh, it's the acceptance of the bad apples that is the problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, you don't see the same type of stories, but like the victim is an elderly white you know, senator or something, you know what I mean? Like, it's, uh, mm-hmm. there's a very, there's a pattern, just like in this movie, there's a pattern. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, another segue I'll take here, uh, it's a it's a small detail, but uh, a great vocal performance by Richard Jenkins. Yeah. Uh, who, who kind of randomly uh, plays the former, I think he's a former priest uh, who worked at a reclamation center of some sort, uh, and basically attempted to break the story open in, earlier in his life and was discredited by the Catholic Church. But, I mean, he's the guy who is, is honestly the 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt of Inception of this film, where he's just pretty much telling all the facts to the audience and uh, doing a great job of it because he explains to the Spotlight team and to us, the audience, all of the percentages and uh, the realities of, of this ingrained cultural phenomenon. And then he even calls it that, uh, that this is... This is something that is so big that it is everywhere, not just in Boston, but in every single that that's, you know, it goes all the way to the Vatican and, and, and he's right. Like it is, it is part of the culture and it is the culture of secrecy and the idea of um, actually what is supposed to be, uh, one of the hallmarks of Catholic priests of taking the oath uh, to not marry and not uh, engage in sexual conduct. And, and the reality is, is that um, it's that idea that you're not supposed to, and yet so many of them are doing it, most of them with consenting adults. Um, but it's a secret, no yeah. matter if you're doing it with an adult or with whoever. Um, and, and that is, uh, you know, something that led to this really easy way for predators to um, operate without really anyone attempting to question them. Yeah, and this movie obviously touches on the perpetuation of the ridiculous myth that well because they have to be celibate sometimes they just go a little crazy or you know it's like yes mm. because they're a not allowed to have sex with other adult human beings they decide that they'll just have it with children uh <laughs> that's a that's a huge leap you uh uh, so anyway, uh, or obviously that they're gay and that's why they're doing it and whatnot. And um, obviously, I'm I'm glad that even though it's very common sense for a lot of sane people, I'm glad that the movie just states it outright because uh, no matter how simple that that should be to grasp, I know there are going to be people who would go see this that are still like devoutly Catholic that probably still have that mm -hmm. idea. And if that wasn't mentioned, I feel like that could have been like, well kind of cowardly to not just say what's very blatant and obvious. Yeah, which it's, it's made very explicit, as are a lot of things in this movie. And I, I think that even though in some films, as I was mentioning, the Richard Jenkins uh, monologues, basically, that he has throughout this film, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing just to no. dump the facts out uh, to the people who are watching this because... Uh, we, and, you know, joked about this uh, previously, we were talking about this movie that, you know, some people didn't know about this. And uh, obviously I did and you did and most people, I think, did. But at the same time, um, the presentation of the idea of this is a world before this story came out that was unaware, uh, at least the people who were not touched by this uh, in an evil way uh, when it was all going on in its form that was happening prior to the globe article um, so yeah <clears throat> well and it also depicts that like obviously if you're gonna investigate a story like this you're gonna come up against you know brick walls and obstacles because the 
uh, offending party is not going to obviously want to tell the story of the truth, so to speak. But what I think this movie does a good job is it shows that, especially when you're uh, an investigative journalist, that those are not the only obstacles that crop up. You also face the obstacles from the people who have no actual stake in the story. Like, they're not like part of the church, like, on a employed level or anything like that but also are going to in some ways fight the idea of that story coming out because of how it will make people look and like how in a lot of ways that's sometimes more difficult to get over than it is uh just trying to weasel your way in between a lot of evil people you know who are actually doing the bad deeds like we see with john slattery's character who continually throughout the whole film kind of like keeps patting it down like you know this isn't really a big story guys and um mm. you know and down, mm. downplaying the whole thing which is never helpful it's like if you're gonna run the story why are you allowing it but then also trying to push it at the same time like th that's literally uh opposite forces at work which means it's gonna go nowhere if it continues in both directions well, and uh, I think at least early on uh, in the film, because I think as as more things come to light, he's on board with what they're doing. Yeah. But but I think there is some of the idea of him not wanting to upset um, the flow of things because then they have to have a legal battle with the Catholic Church, and it could. Um, it could lead to him losing his job because yep. they don't like the reporting that they've done and they've lost uh, readers and he could be out. And I mean, and then, and then, and then, I mean, that is just how this continuously goes down the trough of people having their own self interests uh, I mean, that are more important than uh, even if he, because I, I also don't feel like he's a bad person in this movie. Like I feel like no. he's just genuinely, trying to do what he believes is right before uh, it really comes to light that this is actually a systemic yeah I mean I think global issue yeah I think basically his biggest flaw in this movie is that he's in denial you know it's mm -hmm. once he crosses over and believes it because he gets all the facts and it's not like he sticks to it or anything like that but when it's just a possibility with no concrete evidence it's something he doesn't want to be true therefore he I wouldn't say like adamantly tries but he certainly makes it vocal and known that for right now I'm on the other side of this so in case you guys lose like you know I, not that he would, like, sell them down the river, but, like, you know, I'm not going down on that ship with you. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of cowardice there, but well, uh, there are worse things to be when you could be, like, genuinely malicious or evil. Agreed. Well, and to that point, though, about his character and his actions in the first half of this film or so, um, he does seem very quick to judge people like... Mitch Garabedian and also Phil Savino, uh, the guy who leads the snap group who yes. really, um, gets them started with victims and that, that scene is also so good, by the way. plants the seed of the, Oh, it is. He's got that box filled with all of the, all of the details and all of the, um, you know, paper clippings and photos and things like that. And he's like, it's all here. 
but there is this idea already that he is crazy, uh, which is a very interesting uh, dynamic to throw out there that, you know, this is the stereotype painted of this person before he even got in the room for his introductory meeting uh, with the journalists who are investigating the story. Yep. Uh, so I love obviously that tide turns, uh, but at the same time, uh, it was obviously a very uphill battle for him. And um, it's an uphill battle for any survivor of anything terrible like this, uh, no matter what they're trying to do about it. Absolutely. I, I really quickly want to say, for a movie like this, directed uh, by Tom McCarthy, I feel like the one thing it's not going to get a lot of recognition for is its visual style, which I think is definitely seemingly muted. But I actually think there's a lot of interesting things happening that in no way overshadow the acting and the writing uh, on purpose. But there, there are a few touches throughout that I like, and one of them is that box, you know, that Phil Savino has with there, because um, there's something about that that is almost like this very uh, workman, workman-like visual metaphor for something that he literally carries around with him. You know, this isn't a, a story he tells. This is genuinely something he has to unpack and uh, bring with him wherever he goes, and I think there's uh, some very... It's a very powerful, I think, image and obviously scene. And especially the uh, the actors in that scene, I, I like that almost all the reporters are still too new to the story to have what I would say is like the amount of respect they should have for him uh, in that yeah. scene. You know, it's not that they're being whatever, but they're a little too uh, unforgiving in certain like turn of phrases or... Uh, they're they're just coming out of the gate wanting to be exacting by the nature of their profession, and they haven't quite bought into this idea yet because they're still quote unquote investigating, and it and it shows on their faces. And and so when he does have his kind of freak out, that's what he's reacting to, not that you know um, that they're so bad, but just like this could be an this could just be another meeting he's had in a long line of them that will absolutely go nowhere but he had to put it all out on the line and why aren't they you know yeah well, i also like his second meeting that we see um which takes place uh in a bar or whatever with uh, rachel mcadams character who also um is giving a pretty muted performance here but i think she's also pretty good and someone who's had kind of a weird career where she came up in that kind of teenager type roles uh, in her early years and uh, has really, I don't think found a really good footing uh, in her acting career, but she's certainly giving a very worthy performance in this. And in that particular scene, um, that's very difficult because the reality is, is you had uh, at least up until 2020, uh, the biggest news story of, you know, the last however many years with 9-11 happening um, in the Northeast where Massachusetts is uh, and everything was on hold. And, uh, you know, rightly so, Phil Savino is very angry that it's been whatever it was, six weeks or two months or whatever it is. And uh, we haven't gotten back to the story that you've been working on that is obviously very personally um He's very personally invested uh, in this story being published and published 
accurately. And, and that's just such an emotional moment that is so hard to grasp this idea of trying to get back to what you're actually trying to work on when you're also living in a world where you have to report on something that you have to report on because how do you cope with that? This idea of this gigantic event that took place that swept up the entire landscape and there is no time limit on when you need to go back to your regular lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one person we have not mentioned is uh, Brian Darcy James, who plays uh, Matt. And while I think that's probably on purpose in the sense that, you know, like I, he's not the best performer in this movie, but I do think for a, uh, what do you call it? A, not a very popular actor, obviously. Uh, he holds his own in every scene that he's in, that he comes off as a unique character, which is kind of a feat in and of itself. Um, and I will say I have one one problem with this movie. I say problem is not like an actual problem, but one scene that I think is utterly dumb, I'm sorry, but is the scene in which after he goes through the addresses, you know, and so, okay, here's the thing. The scene where he goes through the addresses and then tracks down one of the houses right by his block, and it's a one it's a wonder as the camera mm-hmm. follows him. That's a great scene. But then the moment it cuts to him in his kitchen just writing a note, hey kids, don't go by this house. That's a that's a weird way to protect your children from uh, pedof- possible pedophilia. I don't know. I just I felt like it could have just ended with him looking at the house and just going, oh shit. You know what I mean? Like I just I don't know. Every time I see that dumb note on the fridge, I'm just like, okay, that's that's weird. Yeah, he also. Doesn't he, like, write it in crayon or something? Like, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, this, it, like, <laughs> afterthought. It's almost like, hey, you know what? We never, we don't have time to shoot a scene where you tell your wife or tell your children because we didn't hire any actors or actresses for that. So, you know what? Um, here, just grab this, write down something, and post it up or something, you know. It's, anyway. Um, I yeah. mean, I, I guess there is a conscious decision in this movie to not show any of the reporters' personal lives, like, the people that they share mm-hmm. their lives with. Um, except mm-hmm. Rachel McAdams, you do see her with her grandma, so I don't know, that's not... But Mark Ruffalo continually says he's married, but I'm convinced there's an entire deleted subplot where he's murdered her a long time ago and nobody's caught on. He's just slowly eating her remains. Well, I and like ordering <laughs> Chinese for two every time he orders out. <laughs> Just so that way he can, like, have one on the table at all times. And be like, yeah, she was just here, man. You missed it. Okay, oh, well, I brought you pizza because you don't have a wife. Like, <laughs> Oh, man. I, I, don't, I like how you took the other uh, side and then the, the obvious possibility that they are separated because he's a workaholic. But I like the idea that he murdered her. <laughs> you know, I will admit, I don't know that I caught on from this moment that maybe they were separated but that does make a lot of sense (laughs) i genuinely thought it was just a budgetary reason or like a let's 
portray the film from the POV of reporters with tunnel vision. You know, like this, all they yeah. think about is the job, so their spouses are out of sight, out of mind. I never took it as a literal possible commentary that she's not there, and that does make a lot yeah. of sense. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think. But I'm I sticking with, with murder. You yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I think I would have been with you if they didn't have the shitty, uh, not really well put together apartment that he's in that feels like a bad like he choice. just moved in there and yeah. isn't doing anything other than that. So, I think actually John Slurdy makes a comment about him getting out of there or something like that, or saying it's only temporary. Yeah, that's but anyway. <laughs> Oh, man. You know, I, I, weird voice though, and it does not bother me as much. And that's where my him eating her remains comment came from. But <laughs> it, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you. It just, um, but yeah, yeah, he, he does. He does have this have this weird thing where it feels like he like he almost like like has like part of his tongue sewed to the bottom of his mouth. That's why it just wipe. bothers me. It's not the voice so much as. <laughs> Like, I can picture what you're saying, like, the work that it would have to take to create this voice for what gain, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I guess he's trying to do some not kind even a of Boston accent, you know, it's just, I guess I he, he's know. not Bostonian, I guess, technically, because they make a point to say he's really, uh, you know, uh, from somewhere else or whatever, but... I don't know. Every time he's talking to like Michael King, he's like, what? "You want me to go investigate that boss?" It's just you know. I, I will say he does drop it when he gives his big shouty. That's uh, true too. Presentation, so that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's, that's. It would have been it would have been pretty good if they actually like committed to that, and you have to do this. He's just like, "Who could have been any of us?" <laughs> I don't, I don't know why he sounds like the brother from Rat Race. <laughs> <laughs> With the money in the bag, the way we're going home. I don't. I should oh, not that know that, is, but that, I do. <laughs> I should say I, I should not remember <laughs> that, but <laughs> that movie is uh, aged so poorly. <laughs> Mom looking down at the two wheel angel. <laughs> Oh no! Oh boy! <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, want to go to final ratings? Yeah, uh, for Rat Race or for Spotlight? Because <laughs> they're about the same rating. Oh God! Come on. <laughs> yeah, oh, we, can, we can go to final ratings. You want? Uh, I'll go first. Sure. All right. I uh, I give this a four out of five. I, basically, I don't really find any fault with it whatsoever. And every time I watch it, I you know I absolutely love it. I, there's just something slightly, I don't know, unknowable or something that just kind of keeps it at a slight reserve for me. And I think it's maybe every once in a while I feel like it sensationalizes when it doesn't have to, like when it has. Mark Ruffalo uh, shout through his mush or um, just a few other little static scenes. But overall, I mean, this is just fantastic. The cast is fantastic. I appreciate that for a very mainstream movie 
so to speak. It, it does have the tenacity to actually put in the work when it comes to the journalism and whatnot and depicting it in a very didactic way. Obviously, All the President's Men is always going to be the gold standard of that because, in a way, I feel like that's why you remember it being that way because it is it can be off-putting in how uh, mundane it is and uh, often didactic, whereas Spotlight is a slightly more palatable version of that, but not not, not, not much different. Um and so I, I definitely appreciate it for that kind of pacing and whatnot. So, yeah, for me, it's a four out of five stars. Right on. I actually give this the same rating, uh, four out of five. I do think this is a very, very well put together film. And I enjoy most aspects of it, although there are some pacing parts of this movie that are a little slow and a little unusual, I would say. Uh, and there are other aspects of the film that I don't love. Um, this is really, really good work. Uh, very well done content. Uh, very interesting writing and uh, presentation of the story. And especially with the content of the film being about writers and having good writing behind the film, uh, it meshes extremely well together. And it's just a very well-done piece of cinema and was definitely worthy of uh, Best Picture in 2016 and also uh, is worthy of a watch anytime as uh, Spotlight is a very wonderful film, I think. We, we didn't even mention one thing uh, we didn't talk about uh, during this was the discovery of the sick leave designation yeah. uh, in the in the yearly uh, I'm sick. I don't know what those. <laughs> yeah, oh boy, uh, and that is almost like a like a explosive moment because then oh, they've just pointed out where all the rapists are. <laughs> okay, um, and that you know, but I think that that part of the film goes into how how deeply this was entrenched in the culture of the Catholic Church that it had its own designation for where somebody was in service that year that sickly became their code for moving because had another outburst. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, literally it's indicative just, of a systemic, you know, position. Oh, no, yeah, totally. Um, and and it, it is just so insane to, to think that they would just throw that in there. And uh, obviously it goes to the idea that they never thought uh, in a million years that anyone would either a put it together or B if they did put it together, um, call them out on it. So fascinating stuff. Yes. <laughs> so uh if you out there have any thoughts on spotlight always feel free to send them to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com and if you just want to hang out listen to any of our episodes you can always check out our website filmtankshow.com or you can also find us on apple podcasts or stitcher or spotify or a lot of other podcasting 
type places at Film Tank Show. Not quite sure what we're going to have on our next episode. Uh, we got quite a few ideas that we're tossing around right now, so we got to put a little bit of a schedule together. But um, whatever we have coming up next, uh, hoping to have Toussaint back. And I think uh, it'll be another wonderful episode. So look forward to talking to you then. So, from Nick Cheney. Bye. <laughs> and myself, Alex Diekman. As always, thank you guys very much for listening to us here at Film Tank. And we will look forward to talking with you next time. Next time.